to the AT Tapes, a podcast from the Journal of Athletic Training. The goal of this podcast is to interview researchers and clinicians on current topics facing athletic trainers and discuss how we can utilize best practices to improve patient outcomes. My name is Lizzie Hibbard, and I will be your host for this podcast. I'm a faculty member in the athletic training program at the University of Alabama, and I have a research interest in shoulder and elbow injury prevention in youth overhead athletes. You can follow me on Twitter at EE Hibbard. Before getting started on today's episode, I wanted to remind everyone that all content from the JAT is open access, meaning it is free of charge to all readers thanks to funding from the National Athletic Trainers Association. Today's guest is Dr. Michelle Rockwell, who is the lead author on the article titled Vitamin D Practice Patterns in National Collegiate Athletic Association Division I Collegiate Athletics Programs in the current issue of the JAT. Michelle is a registered dietitian and board-certified specialist in sports dietetics and is currently on faculty in the Department of Human Nutrition, Foods, and Exercise at Virginia Tech. She has worked as a director of sports nutrition at the University of Florida and consulted with over 45 NCAA programs in addition to teaching classes and guest lectures. We're excited to have Michelle on the podcast today to discuss her article in the JAT as well as sports nutrition and athletics. Michelle, thank you for joining us and welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. So before we get started talking about your article, I want to get to know you a little bit um, and kind of learn more about why you decided to become an RD and specifically focusing in sports. You know, it was a dream my whole uh, growing up to work in nutrition at the intersection of nutrition and exercise. Um, I'm sort of old, so it wasn't as common as it is now to have registered dietitians specializing specifically in sports nutrition. So that was a career aspiration of mine. I was an athlete. Um, I had family members with some medical issues related to nutrition, so it all just fell uh, in line for me. So can you give us a brief overview of your educational background and sort of how you ended up where you are today? Sure. I must really love being a Hokie because I have all three of my degrees from Virginia Tech. I did a bachelor's degree in dietetics, followed by a master's degree in a sports nutrition program. I then got a dietetic internship, which was actually at the National Institutes of Health to become a registered dietitian. You need to do some sort of supervised practice training. And then I worked out in the field for about 18 years before returning to Virginia Tech, where I just finished a PhD actually last summer. So throughout your professional career, you've had a variety of experiences and really led the way in sports nutrition in athletics. So can you give us some of the highlights of your professional career path? Well, my first job I ever got out of my master's and internship was my dream job. And not everyone gets to say that, but I definitely don't take it for granted. I had the opportunity to start the sports nutrition program at the University of Florida. This is a long time ago. This is 1999 when it was really uncommon for athletic departments to have a practicing sports dietitian full-time on staff. I think there were just three of us back then. And now there's so many, so much more than that. I was able to build the program from the ground up. 
at University of Florida for six years before I moved to North Carolina with my family and started a private practice, which was such a fun opportunity for me because I got to help other universities and programs start sports nutrition tracks and sports nutrition programs. I got to work individually with athletes and teams throughout the country. So it was a great chance to get to know so many athletes and other sports medicine and sports performance professionals and make an impact for athletes. So as you mentioned, you recently earned your PhD and are now in a full-time faculty position or have been for a couple of years. Can you tell us a little bit about your research interests and how these evolved from your clinical practice? Yeah, after working for more than 20 years as a practicing sports dietitian, I think I felt a little burned out and not as fresh with making an impact directly with athletes. And when the opportunity arose for me to move into a position that was much more about teaching new practitioners who want to have that same inspiration and drive to do what I did, to work every day hands-on with athletes, I just jumped at it. So I felt really lucky to start in a teaching position at Virginia Tech. This is back in 2015. And it evolved into some really neat research opportunities. And that was honestly built out of relationships with the athletics department, specifically with other sports dietitians and athletic trainers. So not everywhere, unfortunately, is there such a natural collaboration between athletics and academics. We enjoy that at Virginia Tech and everybody benefits. We're all working um, in our own lanes, but to make the athletes better, to do high quality research and train the future of sports nutrition and sports medicine. So you already talked a little bit about your experience working with athletic trainers at Virginia Tech, um, but can you tell us a little bit about throughout your career working with athletic trainers and how this relationship can really be mutually beneficial in improving patient care? Yeah, and it's always uh, not resonated with me that there sometimes is a bit of a turf war between sports dietitians, athletic trainers, and others because we are such important teammates for the athlete. And a lot of the work that we do does overlap and it should overlap. I learned some of the most important lessons I've ever learned from athletic trainers who were working with me, showing me the way, teaching me whole person care at the University of Florida and beyond. So I bet they've learned um, less from me than I've learned from them, but I think those collaborations are invaluable and I've sought them out throughout my career. Uh, Collaborating with sports medicine makes a huge difference in the effectiveness of sports dietetics interventions. Well, thank you for telling us a little bit about you. And so we know kind of who you are as we talk a little bit about the, this project that you've done. So one of the reasons why we picked this for this podcast is because it was really unique for the Journal of Athletic Training. This nutrition topic in the Journal of Athletic Training, really how athletic trainers have a role in this and can potentially um, play, a, play a part. So can you talk a little bit about where the idea for this research study came from and sort of how you guys decided to do this project of all the nutrition things you could do that this was the, the, the one you did? Well, and this is not a planted question. You don't even know this, but it all was born out of a very organic conversation with an athletic trainer. So just to back up a minute, I have 
been interested from a research perspective in nutrition interventions that can improve performance and particularly can prevent or treat injuries and improve the well-being and safety of athletes. So I've been interested in that forever and had the opportunity to do some vitamin D clinical studies uh, with athletes, also the same for omega-3 research. But the topic of vitamin D is is a very wicked, complicated topic. There's lots of conflict in the guidelines for how we should be treating patients related to vitamin D, what levels are optimal, how we should measure it, the recommendations about the supplements. It's really complicated. So when I was in the athletic training room talking to Ernest Eugene, who was the director of athletic training for men's basketball at Virginia Tech. He now works with the Orlando Magic. But um, I think he thought he was asking me a really straightforward question, and I gave him a very long answer about the landscape of vitamin D. So his bottom line was, so what should we be doing? Should we be testing the athletes on the basketball team? Should we be giving them supplements? Should we be focusing on their diet? And I gave my recommendation, but we also came to this conversation of when the guidelines are so unclear, it is interesting to understand how are other people navigating it? What is everybody else doing? And I would be the first to tell my own teenage kids that just because everyone else is doing it doesn't mean we should be doing it. But that's one way to navigate a path forward is better understanding what folks are doing. So I'm in general interested in what I would call health services research, how we are providing care and when and why and what influences come to play. So it was so fun to be able to survey athletic trainers for this study to learn more about how they're managing vitamin D. So in this project, you were looking at sort of these patterns of vitamin D testing. So I guess I want to start out by talking a little bit about what are some of the symptoms uh, that you would see with someone that has vitamin D deficiency, particularly in the athletic setting. And then the flip side of that, um, that you can maybe hit on would also be the benefits of vitamin D supplementation. Vitamin D is my favorite nutrient because it is really more like a hormone that has such significant impact on almost every body system. So ranging from immune function to muscle development and recovery, protein synthesis to cardiovascular function and so forth. So vitamin D does lots of stuff. We are clear about that. We are less clear about the symptoms, especially of a subtle vitamin D deficiency or vitamin D insufficiency. We do know that in the general population that or with anyone, of course, vitamin D is required for calcium absorption. So without sufficient vitamin D, we are prone to having weak bones or stress fractures. Of course, that's really relevant for athletes. Bone and muscle pain and weakness are other classic symptoms of a true vitamin D deficiency. There has been just gobs and gobs of research associating low levels of vitamin D with many health issues from depression to uh, cardiovascular disease to diabetes to much more. The clinical trials don't necessarily find that correcting the vitamin D deficiency improves diabetes or improves risk of cardiovascular disease or depression. So there's a lot of uncertainty in the literature Uh, with the general population. 
However, there have been some really exciting research trials involving athletes where performance, recovery, and risk of injury and illness have been associated with low levels of vitamin D. Not every study has found this, but there are an increasing number of studies that seem to show a relationship either between having low levels of vitamin D and injury, illness, uh, impaired performance, or that those things improve when we supplement with vitamin D. And I can share some research that uh, we also did at Virginia Tech. It is published in the January 2020 issue of International Journal of Sport Nutrition and Exercise Metabolism. We were looking at college swimmers, and a lot of people understand already that we make vitamin D in our skin when exposed to sunlight. So in the summertime, athletes may have higher levels of vitamin D than in the fall and winter when we don't have that same opportunity from sunlight. So our swimmers, for the most part, had pretty high or certainly adequate levels of vitamin D at the end of the summer. We did a double-blind intervention to supplement them either with vitamin D or a placebo throughout the fall months to see if we could prevent a drop in vitamin D levels throughout the fall. And we found that the swimmers who took a placebo, their uh, vitamin D levels dropped quite significantly, more than uh, more than 30% just from uh, the end of the summer until around November, but the athletes who took vitamin D supplements stayed pretty steady. They actually increased by 8%. But more interestingly, what we're really looking for is, does that translate into better strength or better performance? And in strength tests, we showed that uh, lower body strength and power, so vertical jump, deadlift, squat, were improved more in those athletes who took the vitamin D supplements than those who took placebo. So that's so exciting. I think it's a very translatable applied research finding that could be implemented with athletes and make a big difference. So you guys talked a lot about some of the methods for actually testing vitamin D within the paper. And so if you could just briefly hit on some of those methods and maybe some of the associated costs, because I know that's sometimes one of the biggest barriers is the cost um, before we kind of talk about how these are utilized. That can be a barrier. And vitamin D is unlike other lab tests in that there is great Uh, variability in the different methods that are used to measure a blood sample of vitamin D. And none of them, um, some are better than others, but none of them are completely reliable and without issues. So we measure vitamin D concentrations in the body or vitamin D status in the body through a blood test. So what we're really looking for is serum 25-hydroxy vitamin D. It happens so often that the wrong vitamin D test is ordered. So if someone is ordering 1,25-dihydroxy vitamin D, that is not reflective of vitamin D status. So first of all, we're looking for a 25-OHD. Different laboratories use different 
assays. So sometimes they're using something called immunoassay. Other times they're using um, mass spec, which is probably the gold standard for research testing with vitamin D. Others use a method called ELISA, and there are either even some besides that. So part of the cost differential is related to those different methodologies, but that doesn't completely explain it. So vitamin D tests usually cost between $30 and $300. The average is probably somewhere in between. The majority of respondents in our survey who are all athletic trainers at NCAA programs throughout the country, we heard from between 200 and 300 of them. A lot of them said that the cost to them is around $150. So that's definitely no joke when you multiply it times lots and lots of athletes. So when you looked at those um, Division I athletics programs, what did you guys find as far as uh, the overall practices and how many were actually utilizing this testing and how that information, how and why that information was collected? So we heard from enough of the, uh, see, this is why we can count on athletic trainers. (laughs) Ernest, my collaborator, had a feeling that if we reached out via survey to head athletic trainers at all of these um, collegiate programs that we were going to get a great response. And we were just working with the Division I athletic trainer. So there's more than 300. And it's amazing. We did great a great response. Over 70% of head athletic trainers uh, responded. So we feel like we can extrapolate our results because we got such a great response. We assume we have a good capture of what's happening uh, naturally. So we found a couple of things we found are that two thirds of programs are regularly in some capacity testing vitamin D levels for their athletes. But beyond that, most things are really erratic. All different types of patterns are going on. So some programs are testing every single solitary athlete at physicals which is probably a terrible idea because we usually do physicals in August when people have been in the sun all summer. But there were a number of programs that are testing every single athlete at one or more times throughout the year. There were other programs and more programs saying that they tested athletes if there was some sort of specific indication, like maybe if they had a stress fracture or maybe if they had um, disordered eating or some sort of red flag. Others said it was more arbitrary. It's maybe if a physician detected a need. So people are testing in all different types of frequencies. We found differences in how many people are following up. So sometimes athletes have an abnormal test and are having a follow-up test. Other times there's no follow-up test that happens. There was broad variability in the target 25 OHD level that the athletic trainers reported that we're looking for. So some people said we're shooting for 20, others said 30, others said 40, and a lot said that they don't know. And that doesn't mean necessarily that anybody's doing something wrong. It means that we're interpreting the guidelines, which are very inconsistent, differently, and there are no athlete-specific guidelines. So we kind of talked about the cost as a potentially a barrier already. And so what are options for programs that either have limited budgets to get this information or in advising vitamin D supplementation? 
I think that's an awesome question. We definitely identified a difference in the frequency of vitamin D testing and the likelihood of paying for vitamin D supplements for athletes based on presumed budget level. And we made that assumption based on asking if a program was a football championship division, subdivision program or a bowl subdivision program. And there was a significant difference there. My hope is that this paper wouldn't be portrayed as a call to action that everybody should be testing vitamin D levels and every single athlete all the time, because I don't think that's necessary. Can it be helpful? Perhaps, but could it also be overtreatment that causes more trouble? I think so. So there are options for programs at a high school or if the budget doesn't set us up to be able to test vitamin D levels. And that is to use the great assessment skills that every athletic trainer I've ever worked with and every sports dietitian I've ever worked with has. And we know that more than 50% of athletes have low levels of vitamin D. Um, That might even be higher than the general population, but low levels of vitamin D are really common. And there are a number of factors that predispose us to having or predispose an athlete to having vitamin D insufficiency or deficiency, such as very little sun exposure. Indoor sport athletes have more low vitamin D than athletes who train outside. Those who have darker skin do not make vitamin D as efficiently or as well from the sun. So athletes with darker skin pigmentation are more likely to have low vitamin D. Athletes who have larger bodies, and that might be height or physical size or body fat percentage have lower levels of vitamin D. Those who are training in a high latitude region also are much more likely to have low vitamin D. So we can go through that assessment and ask some of those questions of the athlete or of ourselves and determine if they likely have low levels of vitamin D, in which case it might be really appropriate to counsel the athlete about including more vitamin D in their diet, dairy products, uh, fatty fish, eggs, sometimes juice and cereal are fortified with vitamin D, or in taking a low maintenance dose of vitamin D supplements, 1,000 to 2,000 international units would be responsible and would be very unlikely to cause any sort of toxicity. So we can we can assume it's rarely a surprise, I think, when we find out that someone has low vitamin D if we have considered all these factors. I will say in a perfect situation, it's preferred to get a vitamin D level because then we can make sure we're treating enough or we can make sure we're not treating too much. And of course, there are individual uh, variants and there are other factors that affect vitamin D status. For example, some medications someone has a a GI issue or malabsorption, there are some less visible or less tangible issues that can affect vitamin D levels. But I think there are ways around it than just figuring out how can we find money to test every single athlete. I think that's really valuable information for us because sometimes, particularly on topics that are not as much in our wheelhouse, it it seems like, okay, well, we need to spend the money to do this. And when that's maybe not or a difficult sell in your, at your setting. So when you're at a place without a sports dietitian, 
what is the role of the athletic trainers in um, maybe advocating for this vitamin T testing, supplementation, advice, sort of how do, if you don't have a sports dietitian that you're regularly working with, um, how can we as athletic trainers um, really advocate, I guess would be the best word for vitamin D? Well, I think you have so many great questions. Of course, I would be an advocate for it's it is not realistic for every institution to have a full time sports dietitian or more, um, which we see at some places. But even developing a relationship with a health center registered dietitian, a medical center registered dietitian, a volunteer student or intern someone to bounce these ideas off could or helping you figure out a protocol at your institution can be really valuable. Again, not always realistic, but I think that's a great advocacy role. Athletic trainers play such an important role in taking care of athletes who have injuries or taking care of athletes who are having clear issues that might be related to vitamin D. So a place to start could also be testing those athletes or referring them to a doc or a sports dietitian when they clearly have red flag signs like eating disorder, like gastrointestinal issues, like very minimal time out in the sun, and some of those other risk factors we talked about, stress fractures certainly, and keeping great records and being able to say, wow, we tested X athletes, Y percent of them had low vitamin D, what would we find if we looked preventively at more athletes, if we screened certain high-risk teams? And connecting that with this literature that is starting to show us that low levels of vitamin D increase risk of illness, increase risk of injury, and decrease performance and recovery, that's meaningful language to athletes, administrators, and coaches. So I think starting with the highest-risk patient's keeping great documentation, and hopefully um, building our way forward to more appropriate and regular screening. So outside of just this article, I think you've given us a lot of really good suggestions and your experience on effective relationships between athletic trainers and sports dietitians, and also how athletic trainers can be advocating for sports dietitians in their setting, either full-time or as a consultant or at a health center. But sometimes we do get questions directed towards us. Do you have some resources that you would suggest for athletic trainers on sports nutrition um, that are just good resources for us to all know? I would start with the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, it's the sports nutrition care manual. And I don't think that's used by so many athletic trainers, but it could be a great one. It's an app or a website where there's ready to print materials about lots of different sports nutrition topics that can be super helpful. I also think there are some good partners in industry that put forth reputable, valuable, ready to use information. And certainly there's a lot of garbage information out there too that we have to sift through. But a couple worth mentoring, mentioning is a company called My Sports Science, which is owned and run by Oscar Yukendrup, who is a sports scientist, uh, has a really great knack for translating science information, almost always about sports nutrition, into user-friendly 
clips and slides and social media posts and infographics. That's a great one. And so is the Gatorade Sports Science Institute exchange program. They have experts write articles that are user-friendly for um, practitioners. So as we're finishing up the podcast today, could you give us one to two sort of take-home message from your publication or from sort of your years of experience and working with athletic trainers on how the information discussed today and, and with sports nutritionists or dietitians can be used to impact clinical practice? In our study, we found so many different practice patterns. People are doing lots of different things because there are no clear guidelines. But a couple of takeaways that come to mind for me are the research is promising related to vitamin D status or vitamin D supplementation and athletic performance and health and wellness. So we need to be on the lookout for uh, more firm and concrete findings and be able to use that with athletes. We're not there yet to say confidently that we know what vitamin D does, but we are getting closer. So be on the lookout there. A second recommendation is is something that you guys practice in your world every day, but it's finding the balance between too little and too much. So it's no good to have too little vitamin D. There are some definite consequences of having too high of levels of vitamin D or excess supplementation with vitamin D. Likewise, it's no good to not be screening or testing vitamin D levels in athletes who we could really detect something and make a difference in. But I would argue even when budget is no obstacle, there are lots of harms and risks associated with over-testing as well. So finding that balance between too little and too much related to vitamin D and vitamin D related services is really important. Well, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your knowledge, both on this topic, but also from your years of experience and um, the relationship between athletic trainers and sports dietitians. I hope you all found this podcast informative and that you can utilize the clinical recommendations to improve patient care. That's it for today's The AT Tapes. Please remember to rate and subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Also, please follow the Journal of Athletic Training on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at JAT underscore NATA on all three platforms. Thank you for listening, and I hope you will join us for next month's episode of the AT Tapes.